Welcome to Design Related, where we talk to our favorite designers about their origin story, what they're working on now, and everything in between. Today, we're talking to Linda Joy. She's a product designer at Quartet, which is a healthcare tech startup that is helping patients by improving how their doctors work together. We talked about the challenges of doing user research with doctors and patients, the dynamics of building a small design team at a startup, as well as her transition from consulting to going in-house. So let's get started. I guess what I'm, I'm most curious about is your experience as a product designer working in this domain. And um, you know, we've, we've, we've heard a little bit about um, access to users being an issue in healthcare. Um, and I'm kind of curious what your read has been being in this domain for a while now, um, what things you've learned and, and what's difficult about that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, working in healthcare, it's notoriously difficult to get in front of doctors, in front of um, the people whose days are spent jumping from one 10-minute appointment to the other, you know, and, and getting paid like a, a lot of money to do that. Well, I mean, PCPs actually turns out they don't get paid as much as I thought they did. But still, their time is uh, very valuable. <laughs> um, so, well, we have, I mean, at Quartet, there are in theory, there are four different players involved. That's why we're called Quartet. Um, there's the, the patients, of course. There's the, the doctors, mostly PCPs, a little bit of exploration into other specialists. And then behavioral healthcare providers, which you can also just say therapists, because that's most of them, but that can encompass um, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists. There's lots of little differentiations within there, too. Um, and then the, the payers. So the payers is sometimes the insurer um, or a health system like a, an ASO, which is where they're trying to basically trying to control uh, health spend overall for, for patients. Um, so the PCPs are the hardest to get in front of. Um, but we have to just find like, we're always trying something new to try to get that information out of them. So definitely we make our trips out to the markets so Quartet is in, right now, four different markets um, because, you know, we have to find a payer who's interested and, like, believes in the platform. We've sold them that we can actually save them money. Um, and so those, right now, we just have small pilots going in four places, and that's Pittsburgh, Seattle, um, New Orleans, and Massachusetts. And by As, markets, are you talking about the insurance markets? Uh, well, I mean the locations. Oh, okay. Right. So it's like you need sort of a, I mean, Quartet connects, um, is, do a lot of care coordination, right? So the whole thing with Quartet is that they, we try to connect people th to behavioral health care via their PCP generally. Um, people are, you know, people are used to going to their PCP. People are often going to the PCP about not just their physical health care, but they're also often getting prescriptions for antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills. Um, so we go, by going through the PCP, we have a better shot at getting folks who wouldn't naturally get themselves into a therapist or a psychiatrist. So that's sort of like our recruitment method, if you will. Um, yes, yeah, so we go out to the markets, meaning like we, we have to set up something. We have to set up, we have to get a network of PCPs and a network of BHPs. BHPs, I'm going to keep saying that. It's really hard not to, but it's behavioral health care providers. Um, so network of PCPs and therapists and psychiatrists. And 
before we can actually get patients going through that loop to get them connected. Because we match people by their location and the insurance that they, um, that they have. So back to the question about how do you get in front, how do we get user research done? So we, go out, we try going out into the markets, and that's, you know, it's hit or miss. Uh, there's, we have folks who are field operations team, we call them, and their job is to you know, keep the PCPs happy. So we ride along with them. You know, um, and sometimes they can sit at meetings where there's a PCP who's really excited about our mission and will love to talk to us about what they do all day. And that's great. But those PCPs are few, far between. We call them our PCP freaks, oh, lovingly. It's a very loving term. <laughs> Um, but most of them, yeah, like it's it's really tough. So sometimes we we do we do some surveys. Um, a lot of times we can try to get some of that information out of the office staff who have a little bit more time and are a little bit more amenable to just like oh having a quick phone call or a quick uh, go to meeting session, look at something, and then also just leveraging that field team. Right, we give them little missions to like try to get the answers to a couple of things that are really important. So are users, are the, the patients themselves, uh, ever part of your interview process, along with the, the BHPs? Yeah, so the patients, the BHPs are... Uh, Love it. What's that? Learning. It's already absorbing so much of the domain. <laughs> I know. Uh, the, the behavioral health providers are the easiest to get in front of because they're getting paid you know, roughly 75 to 100 bucks an hour by an insurer. So we can afford that. You know, we can just say, yeah, no problem. Amazon gift cards for everyone. You know, great feedback. It's it's fantastic, and and there's a lot of them. And also, they're the ones that are, you know, they have more of a connection to the patient, and they're more they're a little bit more excited about the mission, um, in general, like the idea of like actually getting patients better by collaborating with PCPs. They've already been spending time trying to get in front of PCPs to get referrals and. They need to coordinate with them already, so they're, you know, if there's a medication issue or something. So they're, they're totally open to it. Some of them are like, you don't have to pay me. This is great. Um, patients are another story, though. So our actual patients, we can, we've had some success getting them, but um, usually the patients we really want to talk to are the ones who don't make it to care. And so they're, the, of course, the hardest to get in touch with. They're like... The ones that we've call, already called, you know, three times, left a lot of voicemails, trying to like finish this referral off. Um, so that's really challenging. And I, so Quartet has this whole side of um, helping. So we don't just do these referrals where a PCP identifies someone needs healthcare, or behavioral healthcare, and refers them. Like that's a big part of what we do. But we also help them identify people who might need behavioral healthcare. Um, so that's where things get really interesting. Um, and we use, um, got a great data science team that goes through claims data from insurers and can pick out the people who are, are using the highest amount of healthcare overall. And so we're all based on this whole theory that uh, an improvement in your behavioral health and your mental health actually has an improvement in your physical health. So therefore, the better you're doing um, mentally behaviorally, et cetera, just you know, the happier you are, the healthier you are, the better you're going to be able to take care of yourself and sort of like face the challenges of whatever chronic illness or diagnosis that you're facing. So we go through and try to figure out like who are the people who it looks like there may have been some behavioral health issues in the past, 
they're suffering from some kind of chronic illness or they've been to the emergency room numerous times for non-emergent things. I'm trying to pick out, pick out the folks who are really at the top of that, that utilization and think like we could really help them and that ultimately could save a lot of money for the people who are paying us, so for the insurer. How, how does it work? In this case, are you talking about the, the PCP saving money in time for the PCP when you help the patients or somebody other insurers? So we're saving money for the insurer. Um, there, are, there are some PCPs if you're within a health system. So we have some insurers and some health systems where like the, actually the PCP is judged in some way on their, their patients' outcomes. This is a big change in healthcare. It was always fee for service, in which case you're sort of incentivized to run all the tests and try all the things. Um, whereas they're really have been trying in the last decade or so to do more value-based care, but it's yeah, incredibly difficult to really put a, a number on that and hold a PCP accountable. But there is more and more of that, and so there are some PCPs who are yeah, benefiting from this. But the value to them is really more about, we're going to help you get your patients better. So they, throughout their day, maybe like 20% of their patients are people who are really, they're coming in and they've got some symptoms, and they keep coming back to for like this physical thing that's not getting better. It's aches, it's pains, it's it's migraines, it's stomach issues, and there's no real like diagnosis to give them. There's nothing clearly wrong. We did the blood work, uh, we tried everything, but we're not quite sure what it is. So we're gonna help them with those patients because not all of those people are suffering from a behavioral health issue, but um, all right, it's not necessarily the, the underlying cause of that, but inevitably, if you're someone who has a bunch of aches, pains, stomach issues, et cetera, it's probably getting in the way of your life and these things you know, kind of play off of each other. Um, so we're trying to help them, give them an alternative for that person, especially folks who have chronic pain. It's something that we finally realized was like a really great connection we could make for them um, because there's been tons of studies that say that you know, something like, some of them say 50%, some 75% of people with chronic pain are also suffering from some depression or anxiety. So what's it like being a designer in this space? Like, what would you consider to be the most challenging thing so far about working in this domain? Uh, well, it's it's really new and it's not well figured out. So we're based on the idea of collaborative healthcare, like, and that the idea that by the providers collaborating, it will somehow lead to better outcomes for the patients. And we certainly have some ideas and there is some literature about this. And it's very clear when it's a, uh, uh, a, a BHP saying like, I think this person might benefit from a low dose SSRI or antidepressant medication. You know, maybe you're, you could get them connected to that or I'm concerned about this person. Um, but it's not clear cut like how this, other, like, other than those kind of examples, it's not totally clear. Uh, behavioral health providers and physicians are not used to collaborating over things that aren't like really severe important things such as a medication issue. So we're trying to help them sort of figure that out and we're right there in the middle of it because we're this platform in which they can collaborate. Also, the B naturally, BHPs are the ones that are more excited to collaborate. There's more information to give, see patients every week, et cetera. So that's really what I've been the most challenged with in my, in my work at Quartet, which is like, well, what is meaningful collaborative care? But it's also really exciting. Um, it's really fun trying to have these moments where you're like, wait, I think that we're getting at it. 
because uh, we're yeah, trying to guide them, like help them figure it out between them. It seems like as an outsider in this space, there's so many, there's so many factors at play. There's uh, obstacles, you know, physical separation between uh, these providers. There's also um, even even if uh, different providers were located in the same office, you know, their schedules are so slammed. You know, there's there's time constraints. There's policy procedural constraints. There's legislation. Um, it just seems like a very, very, very like crowded, thick space. And I wonder as a designer, like how you prioritize what the pains and, and needs are. Yeah, prioritization is, a, is always an important topic, especially at a, a high growth startup in which uh, everything is the top priority is pretty standard. You go over and over with that, with whether it's your PM or your, your CEO or COO or, or head of product. It's really hard to decide what are the priorities. So yeah, that definitely is a is a tough one. Um, so pr- I guess we we're prioritizing by like what is like the the biggest hole in our product, and there have been many. <laughs> you know, I've only been there for six months, and it's been so amazing to see the product go from. I mean, I think a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, the product was more or less a pitch deck, and then they've managed to sell it uh, to four different markets, four different insurers. And we've been really trying to keep up with that. Um, so sometimes the prioritization is sort of, I mean, we know all of the things we have to do, but it's really, yeah, it's just what's the thing that's the, the biggest link that's missing in the chain? Like if you read out the sentence of like, what's the value proposition is that, you know, my quartet connects um, high risk patients to behavioral health care. Um, and gets them measurably better. We're like, all right. Oh, and, and sorry, I left out the collaboration part. <laughs> so wait, high risk patient, Cortec gets high risk patients to behavioral health care, helps them collaborate, BHPs collaborate with B- B- PCPs in order to get patients to better measurable outcomes. So we're just getting people to care was the first thing, right? So we're trying to get the tubes together. We've got a network of BHPs. And then how do you, um, how do you, make sure you're making good matches. We've got information. How do we get our information right? And getting all like, it's a simple-ish algorithm, but when you've got nothing, it's a lot to do. (laughs) And how, it's really hard to make those decisions when you see that something is, it's doing its job, but it's really quite broken the way it's doing. You're like, wow, 20% of those matches are really wrong, but we're getting 80% of those people to care. So now we got to move to the next thing. which is like making the collaboration work. And we're like, well, we've got like a third or more of the BHPs collaborating and like 20% of the PCPs. We've got to get that just a little bit further and then we can finally work on doing a better job measuring what's happening and are people actually getting better. And then how do you, the patients perceive Quartet? Do they see Quartet at all or is it behind the scenes between the, the providers? Yeah, that's a really tough one because we are sort of removed from the situation in which um, a PCP refers them to Cortez. The first touch point with them is the the PCP explaining them what it is. And trying to get a PCP to give a a succinct pitch of what's going on and what Cortez is and what to expect. Um, Yeah, I have a hard time explaining what Cortez is. So (laughs) 
Um, they have all different expectations. Sometimes they end up getting referred and the PCP hasn't actually mentioned to them that they've been referred, or maybe they talked about referring them, getting them to behavioral health, and then they're getting a phone call from us, or maybe just directly from a behavioral health care provider we match them with. Mm -hmm. So that's always tough to, to deal with. Um, but we're getting in front of patients in other ways as well. So those people who are um, identified by us as having signs in their, in their claims data that they might benefit from this. So we're often the first connection. So it's, it's this cold phone call. I'm kind of interested, you, you worked as a consultant for a while. And in that life, you bounced around from uh, many projects throughout a year, uh, many different domains, and you kind of had to learn on the fly and then do it all again for the next engagement. And now that you're in an environment where there's one product, one domain, albeit a very complex, messy domain with many different facets, um, what's it like now being in that one product world? I love it. I mean, I mean, like you said, it's a very messy domain and there's so many problems to solve that I'm not going to get bored anytime soon. I mean, it's, it's painful to make myself focus on one thing sometimes where I'm like, oh, but what if we could, we could maybe squeeze in this side project because we could be learning about this thing right now. Yeah, I'm, and also it, it matters what the problem you're trying to solve is. You know, I don't think I would be super happy working at a, a big company like where everything, all the processes worked out, everything's down to a, a science, and you're just working on your your widget. Like you're just on the checkout flow. You're one of two UX designers on that checkout flow or something. I don't think I can handle that. But it's it's so big and so open that. Yeah, I think it's it's great, and, and you get to really see things over time. I mean, guess I've only been there for six months, <laughs> so I have done a pivotal project for six months before. Um, <laughs> but it's it's so much more investment in in the in the problems that you're solving, and it's not there's never a moment where you think, oh well, like this project's going to be over eventually, and I'll be on to the next thing. You know, the kind of things you tell yourself to get through when things are going going south on a difficult project. <laughs> We all have our moments. Um, and th things certainly go south all the time at my current job. <laughs> but <laughs> it's this much longer view, you know? You, you just I feel like I'm working towards something much bigger. So you've been there for six months, and it's, it's still a very fast-growing company. Um, so in, in that time, do you see, like, the seedlings of you know, bureaucracy coming into play? Do you, it, like, I, I just wonder if it's an unavoidable fate of every company or if there is a way to keep the magic of the sort of like lean, scrappy startup alive where there's not a whole lot of process and procedure in place for everything. Yeah, and I mean, I think that people have, uh, at least some people have like a, a strong desire for process and for saying how things should be. So I, I do think in some ways it's unavoidable. And we certainly have our moments where we like, look around and are, like, are we a giant bureaucracy, like a, a huge corporation? No, there's five designers on our team. Like We don't have to have all of this figured out right now. Um, but there's, there's plenty of things that are, are clearly not figured out, and that is really fun, trying to work on that. And just today we were doing our sprint planning, and uh, seeing the, the engineers had finally decided, they're like, yeah, let's start doing the... What's it called? Like pointing poker, a whole not 
not saying the points until everyone goes at the same time. And just watching them sort of work their process out, it was, oh, it was a really cute moment. I'm like, these, thinking about what our very first sprint planning was in January with this team, really come a long way. <laughs> there are requirements and uh, acceptance criteria in this story. I mean, nothing's perfect. It's, we're a really long way from that, but like, just you get to see the progress and it's really exciting. And same thing on our team and the design team where there was just nothing. There's one designer as of, I think, September. And now there's five. And so building all of that together, it's been really fun. Can you talk about the dynamics of um, five designers working together or separately on tracks of work? How do you decide when to work together, when to work separately? How do, how do you decide who works on what? Well, on our, let's see. We certainly do collaborate across teams frequently, um, but that's because our, our users are so mixed up with each other. So it's, you can't really do something that isn't affected by the other team. Um, I think the design team is one of the best teams at actually collaborating because we're, you know, we're, we're small and we like each other. <laughs> so that helps a lot. Um, the, we've, since I started, we've since like divided us up by, by user experience. So there's a you know, patient designer, it's the smallest app, it's the most nascent one. And there's two people on PCP and two on behavioral health side. So, I mean, I'm, I'm basically pairing like, with the, the guy on my team. We have a, yeah, so that's pretty easy because we're just, he's better at UI in general, kind of more clean, more quick with sketch, and I'm way more into the planning research, recruiting, synthesizing, and then we just, yeah. We sit next to each other, so we could half-time pair. Um, but then, yeah, working with the other teams, it's if I want to, we're a collaborate, collaboration platform. So, <laughs> you know, we've got projects about notifications. We've got um, projects about getting a referral you know, from a PCP to a BHP. So those things, naturally, it has there's both sides on that. What about um, design collaborating cross disciplines with the other parts of the organization? How does that work? So you talk, you know, we talk about the design team. What about the engineering teams or PMs or you mentioned CEO and COO, I think. And who else like do you as a designer work with closely? So in my team, yeah, I mean, I work, um, I work a lot with the PMs naturally. Sit next to one of them, um, and then the other one is is always close at hand naturally. Um, we're <laughs> so I guess we're we're collaborating with the PMs about like what are right, what are the things that are going to go into the next sprint? What are the things we're trying to test every single week? Um, and we've been pretty good about it for the last couple weeks, sometimes it's every other. So we're always getting with them like, all right, what are we gonna test? So it's where I'm thinking from and I have to work back from like, well, wait, what are you planning to build? And we've been talking about building this thing. So we're working out stuff with them, priorities and stuff. What do the users need? Um, and then with the engineers, it's around you know, showing them the early designs, uh, getting, the, getting the prototypes to them, talking through what does this mean? Um, how, how annoying does this seem to you? <laughs> Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the engineers are, um, they're on the product for so long that they've already, they've built and rebuilt it so many times <laughs> that sometimes they're like, all right, I know you think I'm just a little clever designer over here. <laughs> um, but yeah, getting in front of them is, is, it's really hard. But yeah, we, I would say that's, that's something that's 
it's a tough discipline to keep. So it's really easy for them to, we have a standing design meeting, but um, if we don't, if we're not good about having that every week and really going to it, then things can slip away and all of a sudden they're, they're looking at designs that we consider done and when they're about to build them without having given feedback. Um, how, how do we work with the, C, the C-suite? Did you ask or, that as well? Anybody else? Well, I was just thinking of it because you mentioned it, but I, I'm really curious, like, who else do you work with? Because, you know, I guess my experience has been, you know, we work really closely with us designers, with PMs, with the engineers, and with um, product owners and stakeholders. So I'm wondering, like, who else is in your sphere of, of conversation and collaboration? Yeah, the, I mean, the PMs are the product owners. And then we technically don't have a head of product right now. I mean, like, sort of things sort of shuffled around. So the COO is sort of serving that role. Um, so, I mean, that's really tough when your master product owner is someone who has so many responsibilities that they can barely keep up. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of stuff to try to stay on top of and like be the person who's the, the owner of so many things. So it ends up being like bi-weekly or weekly sync meetings and looking at the roadmap and all of that, which kind of gets back to your previous question about um, feeling like there's a lot of bureaucracy <laughs> in a, or trying to avoid bureaucracy in a, in a lean startup. What, um, going back to the, the I guess your, transitioning from consulting to to product side what are the things that you you've kept and brought over and that you still use um let's see i think being pivotal and pivotal in general was like a really good place for learning about facilitation of decision making so that's been super helpful in trying to think like all right like how do you get alignment from a room um, and looking at things as, as a project, breaking things down into something smaller and like what, was, what does the deliverable look like? Um, kind of, or sorry, like not just like the, the deliverable of like the, the designs or what have you, but more like the deliverable of like what did we really learn here and what do we do? What was the starting point and like where did we get to? But the truth is that I, all the time I totally slip in, like out of that completely, and I'm just completely wrapped up in the product and way too attached to my ideas. <laughs> all the things that consultants don't have as much of a problem with. I'm kind of curious. Um, you know, working as a consultant, there are seldom those moments where, you, like, just by virtue of the fact that we don't have a whole lot of time on any particular engagement, you know, six months roll by and then uh, the client's taking what you've started and going back to their home office. And I kind of wonder, at a product company, uh, when, uh, how often, or are there those moments where you notice based off of the feedback that you're getting or uh, the direction that a product is going, like a, a massive shift in direction? Like, has that ever happened where you're like, oh crap, we were going down, we were embarking up the wrong tree and now we just need to change course entirely. Uh, yeah, we do that all the time. Wow. Embarking up the wrong tree. <laughs> so, so, so what does that mean then for, for the product as it, as it existed and, and what do you do to, to remedy that? Well, I guess we're trying to figure out if we're embarking up the wrong tree sooner than later. So um, 
we, when I started, I mean, one of the first things I did was I was put on a project where they said we we're going to try to want to get all the PCPs to do clinical behavioral health assessments in their waiting room somehow. Like maybe we'll have patients do it on their cell phone or something. So, um, so I we're like, all right, let's uh, let's unpack that. What's the hypothesis? What are the ins- what are the assumptions? Let's think it through. Let's go out there and try to figure out like what are the things that we would need that would need to be true in order for this to actually work. And I, I mean, this may not be a huge surprise, but um, <laughs> we went to to Pittsburgh, our biggest market, which is a very much much older city population, like overall. And yeah, those people got some some smartphones, but there's there was like so many, so many huge hurdles in the way to be able to actually make that work. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I feel like I'm just like trying to, yeah, kill those bad ideas early through research and through validation. So, so yeah, I guess uh, how how far had the product come along for for you to get that feedback? What, was this like? Was this something that you could test through? Uh, something very simple, or did, did a lot of engineering time go into this? So for this one, actually, we did avoid having a bunch of engineering time, which was which was great. Um, let me think. What else have we kind of started on and then realized it wasn't wasn't working? Uh, I I mean, really, the whole. Bef- I know that all I know really the story is from before I got there because I would never let a bad idea happen now. That doesn't happen on my watch, guys. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but yeah, they got really excited about building a like a fully function patient app that was going to be like headspace and talk space and all of the things wrapped into one. And I think they're going to do a native iOS app, all of that stuff, and help put a whole team together. And then kind of like they would gotten a lot further down the road of trying to build things and scaffold things only to realize, oh, no, like, you you do realize all the stuff eventually. They didn't have to build the whole thing before they started seeing the, the roadblocks come up in front of them and that they, they really had some other important things to build first. And then the question about um, this idea of sustainable pace that we used to have here. <laughs> sustainable pace. What is that? Does that exist? In, when you're in the product side, is like, what what is the version of that now for you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sustainable pace is two words that come to my mind almost every day. <laughs> it's <a> dream. <laughs> no, it's um, I I definitely I find it. Per, some people like myself find it really easy to throw themselves into it because it's an, it's an exciting problem to solve and. You have these little glimmers of hope, and you're you're seeing people connect, and you're seeing people get better, and get like testimonials of people's lives being changed, and then you see like healthcare costs going down across the population. It's really easy to just be like, must keep going. Like there are so many things we can do to make this. You could improve it so much just by fixing these little things. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a ton. Um, but I I've been I have to just figure it out for myself, and I've made. He- I made a lot of progress in the last couple of months where I don't stay past 6.30, but I do let myself go in early. <laughs> so that's like my next move is to start going in at a more regular time and try to keep it keep it to like a nine hour day would be a great 
<laughs> great place to be. Baby steps. Baby steps, yeah. yes. It's a good problem to have. It's a good problem. I think. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, you, you mentioned uh, going from a team of one to a team of five. What are the, the design, I would say, activities or that sort of contribute to the design culture of the company? I mean, that's the easy, fun part of my job. I mean, because um, when we went through that phase of not having a manager here, and we all got to sort of figure out what part of building a design culture we wanted to own and, and help with, like, that's, that stuff's sort of like, oh, yeah, I've done that before. I've done this. We've got all kinds of ideas. We've got all kinds of uh, process and cadences, like, we should figure out for, for getting feedback from each other. I steal all of that from Pivotal, and then you know make it, put our little twist on it, make it our own. So we don't have retro necessarily every month. No, retro about every month. But then we have occasional just like informal airing of grievances. We don't have to do it in a format. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's what else. We don't have. Uh, someone said the word captain ships. I think when I was hanging out at Pivotal recently, and that reminded me like, oh yeah, super fun. And we're already, we're, we, we're small, so it's kind of easy to, to get together and hang out, but it's already something in the back of my mind for what are we gonna do next for, uh, for growth. Have someone in charge of that, one more structure. I like the airing of the grievances. We'll have to steal that one. Yeah, yeah, where it's just so like, you, you no post-its, little, just get complain, yeah. get it out. <laughs> great. Um, I wonder then, you know, given, given you know, six months and change in this domain and this problem, uh, what's, what's success look like to you? Hmm. I mean, success is just this continued, in, I mean, the numbers that I'm looking at are behavioral health providers and PCPs actually collaborating. So actually seeing like the messages get re returned more. Um, are PCPs getting value out of this? Like hearing it directly from our users and and really just like, are people getting better? Um, so I mean, I don't know what success looks like as a, uh, for the next, the next six months, but I, I guess because there's so much that we can do in that time. I'm excited every time that the the metrics change by just like a few percentage points, and it's it's crazy because you can recently release a new feature and like it's been so bare bones. They're like, oh, we finally have a notification email, notification or uh, messages responses just went up. <laughs> um, but I guess that's the that's the product stuff. Uh, but success for me personally would probably be yeah, working if we're all working more steady a steady pace, um, if we're working together better as a team, if it feels more like a well-oiled machine where design is reliably several weeks ahead of development, where we're validating things like ahead of, you know, ahead of the, the start of sprint planning. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm getting really excited right now. What about, uh, what does it take for, let's say that somebody's a designer out there is listening to this and think about getting to the healthcare industry. Um, what do you think would make uh, a good fit for them? Or like, you know, these are things that you should consider, uh, things that you should watch out for before you make a leap into 
this domain. Into healthcare. Yeah, well, I mean, you should be really excited by challenges. Um, and really used to, I mean, you, you can't think in that like normal consumer healthcare style, I'm sorry, it's consumer app style, or even just like your average enterprise app. You're, you're working in this totally different world. Our users don't use email. You can't just like send an email notification and expect a bunch of people to answer it. Uh, PCPs, that is, right? So, our <laughs> wait, say that again. PCPs don't use email? PCPs do not use email. What do they use? They have an electronic healthcare record. Um, yeah, it's. You know, that thing when you go to the doctor's office and they're like punching all your yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's the thing that everyone hates about the doctor's office. <laughs> like, oh, my doctor's always like looking at a computer instead of talking to me. And they're putting everything in their EHR, or they call it electronic medical record too, EMR, EHR. So I have a follow-up about that. Because their time is so limited in between, you know, you, we already kind of talked about this a little bit, but uh, I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, the workflow a little bit. So if you're a PCP and you, you do spend so much of your time in that existing record system and you're seeing patients and you know, when you're not doing those things, you're you know, running labs, you're calling insurance companies, how does this, this product fit into that lifestyle? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... That's what we're, we're always, we're constantly trying to improve upon it because it is very much outside of their workflow. We've long known that that's one of our biggest problems. And we're, we're sort of integrated into one big EMR called Epic. Um, Fitting name. What's that? Fitting name. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like the we're we're slowly working towards that, but we're always just trying to do whatever we can to sort of like ease that burden and that workflow. I and mean, one of our biggest problems, especially like when I first started, was trying to figure out like, well, how are they even using it today? PCPs aren't the ones who necessarily go and take take the time to write out all the information and in referral. You know, that's what their staff is for. So, right now, the way we fit into their day is that for. For most of them, it's that they're they're seeing for the reactive referral, and they're they're talking to the person, talk about a referral. They tell their MA, yeah, refer this person to Quartet, and the MA is gonna look in the chart to figure out what did they talk about, what's this referral about, and um, and they'll put in the actual referral and then see what they'll get. They might the MA might have an email that they might look at, or they might actually log when they just log in to do another referral, go and see like what's happened on the people that have been referred out. And then for getting them to do the, getting them to look at the list of patients that might potentially benefit from behavioral health, um, behavioral health care in some way, that is, that's a tough one. And that's usually just like, let's have lunch and uh, look at some data together, which is the, what our, our Valiant field team handles. So it sounds like you're using a bit of quantitative data along in your process, or you have way more access to that. Right. Quantitative data to to make decisions about um, you said let's look at the data. Yeah, so I mean, look at the data as in when we're trying to show them patients that they see that that might be benefit from behavioral health care. So yeah, we use a ton of data for that. That is, we have data science team of like eight people, I think. I I have to admit I don't know everything that they do, but <laughs> it is magical, <laughs> and they're always you know. 
working in data science and healthcare is uh, its own sort of a whole interview, I'm sure, about like how, how challenging all that stuff is because they've only just started really getting, they've only really started mandating that doctors even use electronic medical records. It's, oh, that law, those laws have only recently gone into effect. So data's all over the place and trying to make sense of that. Have you encountered any, um, any PCPs that don't use any sort of electronic system? <laughs> yeah, in Seattle, of all places. <laughs> That's amazing. So what do they do? I use paper. <laughs> I got giant thick charts and folders and you know, little labels on them, first and last name. It's, it's crazy. Um, but so in, uh, I, I probably won't get this entirely right, but for, for like Medicare, it's, you, you have to, it's, it's legally required some kind of meaningful use of, of electronic records. Um, so in a place like Pittsburgh, there's, yeah, like I said, it's a much older population and they're just maybe, there's something about that market that they're, everyone has an electronic healthcare record. But um, I believe some of our PCPs in like Louisiana aren't, ooh. <laughs> there, there are all paper too. Not all of them, I mean, but just like some of them. There's, they're just, for some PCPs, they're just much happier to sit down, piece of paper, have a conversation with you. And the ones who are on their electronic health record all hate it. It's the one thing they, they think has ruined the medical industry. So of the ones that use the paper system, are they generally more or less pleased than the ones that have the EMR system? More or less pleased in terms about of Quartet? Like the, the effectiveness of the system that they have in place. Uh, hmm. I wish I could say that for, well, I, I mean, I know they all hate their EMR. <laughs> I know the ones that have it, they're like, I wish I could go back to using paper. And they know that, or no, a lot of that, that's not totally true. They'll say like, I know that it, it helps in, in all these different ways, but I spend all day or like checking boxes and trying to go through, you know, it's best practices. So I got to click all the things and make sure I asked about this, this, and that. So it, it seems like a lot of what happens, a lot of what governs this domain comes from government ordinance and policy and things like that. So is that something that like you have in the back of your mind when you're thinking about solutions to some of these really complex problems or do you just try not to think about it? <laughs> what's, what's, what's your relationship like with uh, healthcare policy? Well, yeah, I guess I'm absorbing more and more because it was really tough at the beginning, for sure, because you, you start, you, you're searching for the most intuitive solution. Um, but a lot of times that's, yeah, that doesn't make sense for how things actually are and, and how people actually work because of these, these mandates. And, and the way that well, the way that policy gets written is it's pretty screwed up, like no huge surprise. Um, some PCPs can actually get paid to do what we're asked, what our platform enables them to do. Uh, it's a new billing code. Uh, I believe it's just with Medicare, where a, if a PCP can prove that they collaborated with a behavioral health care provider or case, or care manager and a, kind of collaborated on a treatment plan for a patient, they, yeah, a certain amount of, of money that they get for that. But the way they wrote the policy, the, the behavioral health side doesn't get paid. Yeah, everyone's making frowny faces in this room right now. It's because it's really screwed up. Uh, so are those incentives just right now between PCPs and behavioral health, or does that extend to other sorts of collaboration with other providers? Well, I, I guess I don't know. Huh. 
but the the industry is at uh, medical industry is is figuring this out like our our concept isn't we didn't come up with it on our own it was based on there's a lot of studies about collaborative care those are normally the most of the the studies have been more about getting a behavioral health provider embedded in the actual uh, physical health care provider and then that person sort of sees them a little bit and refers them out but we're trying to build like the virtual version of that which has you know that many more challenges because there's not a person in there <laughs> not a human in front of the doctor <laughs> it's yeah on a screen how, how do you think about uh, privacy issues when you're talking to either you know PCPs or behavioral health providers or um, anybody else on the team because I, I guess I'm, you're, you're dealing with uh, I guess in some yeah, ways, a lot of sensitive information, information. Yeah. Um, I mean if it's about a particular patients like if, if they're just I don't know if we're talking about a, a just in conversation it's I guess it's sometimes that almost feels like less of a big deal I think that providers are they're talking about someone that I haven't met I've never seen this person and I, I don't know I, I've I've definitely been around some of these these guys and and girls who are pretty free-flowing with information sometimes telling me their first and last name uh, telling me about the person and then about the whole story, uh, which is, you could see it as alarming, but also like I'm this person from New York who's never met that person. It's like a, might as well be anonymized, but it's a very big deal as far as like on like the platform wide scale and like security is huge. Um, being really careful not to uh, share um, personal information of our, of our clients over our Slack or our email, because none of that stuff is secure. Um, just, yeah, that's all, that's very tricky. Um, but you kind of, it's, it's really scary at first, and it feels like, oh, oh gosh, I don't want to break anything. It seems so fragile. Uh, but just, yeah, making sure you don't just like copy paste something out of the app. You copy the link to it, and then you go log in to the app and look at this person. <laughs> Careful with the screenshotting, it's always a tough one. So, thank you again for taking all this time to come and talk with us. I, I wonder uh, if you have any 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 thoughts about uh, just general re reflections about the delta between what you're currently doing now versus the type of design work that you were doing in the past, um, and just any any overall thoughts in general. Yeah, well, I I feel every day like. Um, when I think about when I think about how how I work and what my job is and what my day to day is, I'm I feel more excited about it, like in my in my heart in my soul. I feel connected to it, um, and then this mental part of me that's like, oh God, we're just so many things that we need to improve in the way that we're doing this. <laughs> A pivotal is a well-oiled machine, even like the tough projects. There are half the people on that team, you know, the pivots at least, have a really clear idea about what are the ideals, like how, how do we want to approach this? Whereas we're constantly trying to figure that out as a group of, of, of weird, strange individuals who are, you know, don't have as clear of a hierarchy. There's, there's it's so much more flat. Um, Pivotal's been around for 25, what? I don't know, like a million years. And Cortez's been around for like a second. 
Um, I feel like, I, but I, I, in both cases, I had I learn, I've I've got to learn so much about so many different things. So I don't know which one is better. Uh, there's there's you can't really say. I get a little bit more. I had a little bit more free time when I worked at Pivotal, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that I enjoy my time at work more now. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Linda Joy from Quartet. Hope you enjoyed listening. See you next time.